0: Welcome to the podcast. A note to listeners, this is the final episode of the fall 2021 uh, academic semester. We've got final exams coming and Christmas and New Year's. So we're going to take a few weeks off, uh, but you can listen to uh, new episodes starting in January 2022. Our guest today is Dr. David Delio. Dr. Delio is the founder and president of the Newman Idea uh, he earned his Ph.D. in theology from the Catholic University of America, and in 2016, published a book titled An Aristocracy of Exalted Spirits, The Idea of the Church in Newman's Tanworth Reading Room, published with Grace Wing Press. First of all, Dr. Delio, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Stuart, great to be here. Really happy to hear from you again, and um, glad to be talking about what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Well, I'd like to have a conversation about the difficult topic of the conscience. This is a term that's sort of thrown around a lot in our public discourse, whether we're talking, you know, within Christianity or just in, our, in, in, in society in general, um, and then locate that conversation specifically in the writings of Hen- St. John Henry Newman. He was just canonized a couple of years ago, and um, I remember reading somewhere a few years ago that Benedict the Sixteenth said that if newman ever becomes uh, the a, a doctor of the church he would be the doctor of the conscience and of course we just a couple of weeks ago had it announced that we got another new doctor of the church saint Irenaeus, doctor of unity so let's talk about the conscience and uh, newman's understanding of it why don't we start with a, a brief biography who was saint john henry newman
1: uh, yeah, that's great. So, you know, St. John Henry Newman, uh, he's he was born in England uh, in 1801. February 21st is his birth date, and um, he uh, he was born into a very kind of, I would say, a, a merchant or middle-class family um, that was, as he called them, just a, a kind of a very typical Church of England family, that their religion was basically the Bible. Um, liturgy was not a, a big part of their life, but but their parents and um, really instilled in him a, a sense of holiness from an early age of at least kind of the, the, formal, um, the formal teachings of religion. But I think it was even in, it was discussed, it was open in their home. Um, and Newman, uh, Newman's parents were prosperous in their early years and uh, he was able to go to the Ealing School, which was um, you know, a, a, a good Protestant private school um, and it was more evangelically oriented. And and so that is where Newman kind of flirted with um what would have been like the the evangelicalism of their of the early 19th century, um, and but learned some great things, things that had stuck with him. Um, the you know, the idea of the heart as the kind of the biblical font of who, you know, who you are, who your identity is, rather than just simply about emotions. Um, he learned great kind of sermonic you know how to like preaching and um, he learned the scripture very well but he also um, understood the you know he he really imbibed the importance of conversion um, and and at 15 years old he had a he had a, a, a very deep conversion experience himself where he kind of had this profound experience of God as like singular to who he was and um, and within a few years of that, he matriculated to Oxford, and kind of left that evangelical life behind. He felt that it, it, even in its strengths, it still kind of, um, it left him a little cold in terms of it was, uh, it was too emotional. And it didn't, uh, it didn't require the mind and the will in the same way that he found in more of the traditional Anglican uh, practice. And so when he got to Oxford, he really kind of Converted to a high Anglicanism. And in a certain way, that's where he stayed for almost a decade. He ended up becoming a priest. He thought about becoming a lawyer, but he ended up becoming an Anglican priest and, and was really became a superstar of Oxford and one of the most well-known, both, you know, as brilliant intellectually, but also someone who was just really rigorous spiritually. And finally, he was known to be one of the great tutors or teachers at Oxford uh, he he didn't lecture his his thing was having kind of a very personal relationship with the students and guiding them and, and it's because he had that same experience at Oxford where some of his tutors really really taught him how to think and read and learn and and contemplate and in the 1830s Newman started what was called the Oxford movement he was one of the one of a group of men who really wanted to kind of return the church to apostolic principles so they didn't want to Returned to the Roman Catholic fold, but they realized that Protestantism had drifted the church kind of too far away from itself. And Newman had become inspired by the fathers of the church, and and so did a kind of a small group of um, other Anglican um, divines or or priests. And so they they started a movement that um, really tried to reawaken the church to its ancient roots. And that was really the decade of the eighteen thirties. But pretty soon on into it, Newman. Um, Newman really started to have doubts uh he began to read Rome in light of the fathers and read Roman Catholic theology and engage with Roman Catholic theologians and um by the late 1830s he was having a very hard time he started to go into this very deep spiritual struggle and um by around 1841 you know he which is kind of the period that I really studied he was um firmly an Anglican like in his mind but his heart was somewhere else and he couldn't kind of relate the mind and the heart and by 1845 um he he was visited by a Dominican priest um, Dominic Barbieri who was a great kind of confessor and a great um a uh just a really popular priest and he was visited Newman had started a small monastery in England and um above Oxford, and and Dominic Barbieri came there, and October 9th, uh, 1845, Newman became a Catholic, and that is his feast day, and that was, you know, they canonized him very close to that date, and beatified him very close to that date in October of 2019, and then October of 2010, and it's a very significant date, you know, Newman entered into the church, and he didn't know what he wanted to do right away, and he ended up um, going, moving to Rome, Uh, to become a priest. And and he was there and and kind of searching what kind of priest do I want to be? Looked at the Jesuits and the Franciscans. And, you know, he felt that the orders were something he wasn't accustomed to. And he ended up coming to contact with the oratorians who were started by in the 16th century by St. Philip Neri. And Newman really found his home because the oratorians are priests who live not like in a, not with a rule, not with a religious rule, but they live together in community, but they have to live out their own vocations And Newman found that that was very, very similar to what his life at Oxford was like. And so Newman started and founded the first oratory in England. And he's established uh, another oratory too, or helped establish one, the one that's still going strong in in London. So the two main oratories in England now to this day are in uh, London and in Birmingham. And then after that, Newman, um, he was invited um, a few years after that. So he, he, he kind of became an oratory in 1849. and 1852, Newman was asked to start a university in Ireland, the first Catholic University of Ireland. And so Newman threw himself into that work and started what was called the University of Ireland and the Catholic University of Ireland. And he, um, he really kind of uh, set the foundation for the college up in the first five years. But um, as things would have it, Um, it did not fully succeed. Um, What did succeed, oddly enough, was that Newman established the first medical school in Ireland, and it is still functional to uh, today. But his idea of the university, Newman was really trying to start something from the ground up where um, it would be a university that kind of engaged the professions and the humanities and theology in kind of a a harmonious blend um, so that students would have what he would call the cultivated... Uh, the cultivated mind or the cultivated intellect, where they would kind of be able to kind of know their faith, know their profession, and also know just kind of the, the knowledge of of human life from the sciences to the liberal arts. And um, that was really his end game and, and he never got to achieve it. There's a lot of reasons why. And um, in the 1850s and 60s, Newman um, actually came under trial and he was um, he was sued for libel and um, a series of mishaps happened and, and unfortunately the lawsuit stuck and so Newman was almost broke and uh, um, some, but uh, many British Catholics came together and actually bailed him out and Newman had to eventually vindicate his experience and he wrote one of his most famous works called the Apologia Pro Vita Sue in 1864 that really detailed why he became uh, a Catholic. Um, he had been accused a lot of, of being a very deceitful and lying person. And um, he wrote it, and it was to much acclaim. It was kind of, it was part of a spiritual autobiography, but not like Augustine's Confessions. It was much more of, it was like Newman was on trial and had to document and provide evidence that he was a faithful Anglican when he was an Anglican, and now he is a faithful Catholic as a Catholic and um and so he wrote it less autobiographically, biographically more more as a literary work um to vindicate through evidence um who he was and then in the um as the decades went on Newman continued to write brilliant things and he wrote um really a, a defense of how we can believe in God in the modern age is called the grammar of ascent and Newman Newman's goal was for people to like become to, to be comfortable with being a believer around modern skepticism and modern science and saying this is why it's okay and this is not only why it's okay this is why it rationally makes sense and um, a few years later he wrote a great book called the letter to the duke of norfolk where which was in the wake of the first vatican council where newman was accused amongst others of being bad englishmen because they were faithful catholics because they gave their allegiance to the pope and Newman wrote a vindication of that saying that one could be both a faithful christian or catholic especially and also love their their country and um, he kept writing up until about the mid 1880s so he was until he was about 84 years old um, and was just had become by that time a very beloved cardinal um, in the Birmingham area and um, had had you know many people had seen him he was a he was a feisty guy he was a um he had a sharp wit and a sharp pen, but his age softened him. And, um, Newman really became seen as a very wise and saintly cardinal. Um, he was given, he was given the cardinal's hat. He was made a cardinal in 1879 and then kind of spent the end of his days in Birmingham and, um, and passed away on August 11th,
0: 1890. You'd mentioned several times that he, uh, had a deep love for the uh, church fathers, which, of course, is an interest of mine. I think, uh, from what I understand, his favorite church father was Athanasius of Alexandria. And, of course, probably the thing that he, uh, Newman, has quoted most for from the beginning of his uh, essay on the development of doctrine is the statement, uh, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. Can you talk a bit more about his love of the church fathers, of Athanasius, why that was important for him and that famous quote of his uh is that misunderstood by people when they throw that term around uh or is it or in your mind is it sort of uh, rightly quoted as often as it is
1: yeah that's a that's a um that's a, a lot of good a lot of good points and i would say that you know newman um he had kind of phases of the fathers and he was given a set of, of kind of the fathers in, in Latin and Greek in the, eight, in the late 1820s, and that's when, as a gift, and then he was given another gift of them in the 1830s. So he, he had really the extensive library, and he read um, most of the fathers in their native languages, either Latin or Greek. And um, what they really supplied him was, I think, two things, um, a deeper grounding of ancient and kind of classical philosophy but he interpreted their philosophy through their religious writings. But he, you know, he read Origen and Clement of Alexandria and he said that their, philo- their philosophy is what really would impress them. So Newman really attained like a platonic and classical metaphysics through them. And then it was Athanasius and what really, what Athanasius did for Newman was um, he showed Newman what the importance of doctrine and apo- apostolic continuity meant. And that even in the face of a massive controversy, even in the face of, you know, you know, in the ancient church, the Arians actually outnumbered the Catholics, if you will, you know, three or four to one at one point in time and Athanasius held strong. He was exiled and, and Newman saw that there was something about it that he made an identification with Athanasius that doctrine um, was absolutely essential. So the church itself, the church as bearer of doctrine Um, was absolutely essential to the Christian life. And so it couldn't be, it could not be a faith of feeling and it could not be a faith of scripture alone. And and so he took Athanasius as like the father who showed him, and and I would say Ignatius of Antioch was very important as well, the importance of the institution of the church as bearing revelation and truth and doctrine in the world. And um, even in the face of, you know people who would um, you know spit in your face and say that's wrong or that's not true and there's something about that that really resonated with him and you you had a third question on that Stuart what was, yeah oh, that
0: was the point about uh, to go deep into history deep into history
1: that's right and and I think that um there's a there's a there's a lot in that quote and because um you know, some people have read it very polemically, like Newman was kind of, you know, kind of brushing off his Protestant past and his Protestant friends. And that's not what he was trying to say because he knew that, I mean, some of these like Edward Pusey and and John Keeble, these were brilliant, brilliant men, Richard Hero Froude. These guys knew their church history as good as any Catholic. And so what Newman was trying to say though, is that, Um, when he understood that the Reformation was a definitive break in the church's past, and that the reformers in trying to set up their own authority through scripture or through themselves, or that Henry VIII trying to establish a church kind of through his own political might, Newman saw that as a break with sacred history, And so when you begin to connect to it, and Newman would say, once you begin to see the continuities and the changes, and this is what he uses as the word development, that it's inescapable that, um, and he says, I think, you know, were it that Ambrose and Athanasius were to come back today, they would see that the Roman Catholic church is the church of their time as well. And so what Newman was saying is that the ruptures of the Reformation Um, were not true, and that there was an unabiding and continuous kind of um, stretch of, of authority that extended back 2,000, or at that time, 1,900 years. And so that, and you say, if you invest yourself in that and you understand how a tradition really lives, even with the good popes and the bad popes and the good bishops and the bad bishops and the bad things the church did and the good things the church did, Newman would say that that continuity is a truly spiritual continuity that Christ established and cannot be revoked. Um, And so, I mean, when he says you're deep into history, it's, it's, you're, you're seeing that history has an authority and that authority comes through it's sacramental and it's living and it never stops. And, um, and I think that's what he was trying to even tell his best friends that if you look at it that way, you know, it's going to be hard to maintain an Anglican and yet Most of his friends, many I mean, a lot of people followed him and a lot of people stayed. And um, later in his life, Newman, um, in very many beautiful ways of reconciliation, kind of reconciled with some of his friends. But oddly enough, some of his family members, his closest sister, Jemima, uh, never talked to him after 1845, ever again in his life. And he had a falling out with both of his brothers. And um, so it, it was a very tough thing for him. He bore a lot of personal pain in his separation.
0: Let's move our conversation over to the, to the conscience now. Um, the catechism actually quotes Newman as saying that the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Uh, how did Newman understand what is the conscience? Um, what did he mean by that phrase that's quoted in the catechism? And why was the conscience so important to him?
1: It's a good question. And, you know, the origins, I mean, I think the origins of that go back to when he was um, actually an evangelical and he read uh, Thomas Scott's, The Force of Truth, and also Bishop Butler's work, um, which both stress kind of moral rectitude, but they had, I would just say in a way, like very original teachings on conscience, but in, a, in, all, in another way, also just very scripturally based um, um, kind of insights, And Newman began to develop it in that way. Um, Newman, in a sense, views the word conscience like etymologically, right? So you have two basic functions in it, like con, which means like with or together, and then science, which means knowledge. And so it's like knowing together or knowledge together with something. And uh, and actually I have, I mean, I have a phrase of it in, in his Oxford University sermons in 1830. He actually broke down the word that way and he said that your conscience is both a place where you have knowledge, but then there is also the superior knowledge that comes from God, and you're, you're aware of both of them at the same time. And what Newman's big teaching on conscience was, is that conscience is the origin of your religious life. And so he did not primarily look at conscience uh, as our tradition did through St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Alphonsus Liguori as kind of an act of reason um, in judging kind of whether to do good or to do evil um, in in adjudicating and then then kind of leading into that action. Newman kind of recovered a different tradition. And I would also say that, as Pope Benedict kind of recognized, he, he innovated. And it's still in line with the larger Catholic tradition, and it's completely aligned with scripture. But Newman wanted to say that in your conscience, the first thing you hear, it's not simply um, do this or don't do that, like the angels on your shoulder. It really is, you're hearing the echoes of the voice of God. And so this is what how Newman would say, um, why do conversions happen? Why do people become, you know, why are people, uh, you know, pagans and then be, convert to Christianity? And Newman would say that somehow the Christian preaching, so evangelization, touches people's conscience and that echo that they hear now becomes alive and they understand that's what the voice is. That, and the, that voice is actually the living God proclaimed by the church, right? And so Newman would say that the primary, the primary function of the conscience is to hear the echoes of the voice of God, which, are, which obviously are leading us to good things, to holiness. Newman would say every human being has it, it it's, it's, it's built in. And he would say the only difference is, is when you encounter a revealed religion like either Judaism or Christianity, um, and you really encounter that the living revelation, um, and especially Christianity, because he feels that that was the full, like it was the fullness of, of the Jewish, what he calls the Jewish dispensation. But Newman says, when you hear authentic preaching and teaching, or you experience an authentic liturgy, it wakes this voice in your mind. And I wanted to share this with you. Um, there's a, this beautiful quote catches it all. It's in a, um, it's in a sermon called faith without demonstration. And it was, it was in the mid, mid 1830s. And here's what Newman says. He said, there's a voice within us, which assures us that there is something higher than earth. We cannot analyze, define, contemplate what it is that thus whispers to us. It has no shape or material form. There is that in our hearts which prompts us to religion and which condemns and chastises sin. And, and this yearning of our nature is met and sustained, and it finds its object to rest upon when it hears of the existence of an all-powerful, all-gracious creator. It incites us to a noble faith in what we cannot see. And I think that is probably his most beautiful, one of his most beautiful. I was I spent the last few days kind of reviewing you know, his entire um, kind of canon on on speaking of conscience, and it is a ton, a ton. But this is this quote just stood out to me as, that's so in the questions of good and bad and, and as as a judgment of reason, as St. Thomas or St. Alphonsus would teach us, Newman doesn't deny that, but he has a different. he first wants to say, though, it is the echo of the voice of God, so it's the echo of all of power, of goodness. And so when he says it's the aboriginal vicar of Christ, right, what he's saying is, is that if like Christ is like the presentation of the the, the father, the the hidden God, that our conscience, the aboriginal vicar is this like this, you come into contact with the all powerful, all gracious creator. And that voice is in you. It's in, in what Newman would say is it's not just in Christians, not just in Jews, it's in literally every person who's ever existed. And people who live an upright life, like as Saint Paul would talk about in the first chapter of Romans, um, who've who've existed since the time of Adam and Eve, if you will, and, and Newman says this, those are people who've lived by and abided by their conscience, um, which is they've been, they've somehow intimated and listened to um, the voice of God within them, and then lived accordingly to it.
0: The catechism certainly says that we should follow our conscience, but it also says that we first need to form our conscience. And and as I mentioned earlier, we hear a lot of these days conversations about the conscience, both within the church and even on our, our, you know, the secular public discourse. Um, But I never hear anything about forming your conscience first, because if you don't form it, well, it's going to be malformed. And then when you follow it, you're going to be led into error. So, What does Newman have to say about, yeah, follow your conscience, but but you have to form your conscience to hear that echo of God clearly, because if you don't, you're going to be led into error. Well, I mean, one of the things is Newman contrasts, he contrasts
1: um, our conscience with um, what he would call self-will and self-will is um, I'm just going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Um, or I think this is right. And Pete Newman will say, that's a lot of people think that's what they mean by conscience. But Newman is going to say, nope, it's, it's literally a two-way conversation with you and God within you. And so one of the things he would say is you don't fully possess your conscience, that it's, it's yours, but it's like a gift given to you. But it's like, it would be like if your parents gave you a cell phone and it was always on, For the person you love the most, and you were just you had a two way radio, and you talked to the person you love the most all the time. That, yeah, the radio is in your hand, but the radio makes no sense if you're not having that conversation all the time with the person you love. And so, Newman would say it's not like a possession, like, well, it's my conscience, and I have to form it. Um, and, And so, or someone has to form it for me. What Newman wants to say is that the more you live a life of faith and of holiness and what he calls perfection, and, and what he means by perfection is that you're seeking to, to have a pure heart a clean heart as, as Psalm 51 would say. Um, the more you do that, the louder the voice, the echo becomes not so much an echo, it becomes less of a whisper, but more of like really the voice of God. And God is only telling you to do like, to bring you to goodness, to bring you to fulfillment, to bring you. And what Newman would say is as your conscience um, and especially through the practice of virtue. And so Newman would say that the practice of virtue is not the same thing as um, forming your conscience. But what Newman will say is it has an effect insofar as the more we kind of live a life where we live a life of courage Um, We live a life of kind of equanimity where we're kind of balanced, where we live a life uh, where we're just to others, we're fair, we're honest. Um, And most importantly, where we use our minds and make the right decisions um, along the way in in really kind of tough situations like relationships we're in, family situations, work situations, and we're always trying to do the right thing. What Newman would say is the, the effect of that is it opens up that voice of conscience in you? And so you just begin to hear it louder and louder. Now, what Newman would say is, what is that voice always kind of drawing us to? It's drawing us towards the good and away from evil. So at the at the the base of the conscience, right? Like so, like the, the formation of the conscience is you begin you just begin to see clearly and hear clearly, this is good and this is bad for me. And I know it. And I know that God is with me as I'm doing it. And so the formation of conscience, Newman would say, Newman says that kind of there's a, there's components to it. And part of it, he calls it the moral sense. And in, in scholastic philosophy, they call it synderesis, which is, you know, if you try to ask people, well, how do you figure out what's good or bad? How do you know it? Because you kind of know it. And some people will say, well, you know, it's relative, like that culture thinks this is good and bad, that culture thinks this is good, and bad. And there's some truth to it. Newman spoke to that in an 1830 sermon, where he's just He's talking about the moral relativism of his time. But he was really talking about it of like, this is, moral relativism has always been with us. It's never not been with us. But what he wants to say is that um, there are contours of goodness, of good actions, like not lying, not stealing, not murdering, that um, you just know. And he would say that these aren't things you can kind of, you can't just like infer them. In other words, like just kind of figure them out. Like you actually know it and it feels like an instinct. Like, I know I really shouldn't do this to that person. And what Newman is going to say is you have to practice that. And that practice is part of like building a habit and good virtue. Um, And so, but, and as you're doing that, what is good and what is evil become even more and more clear to you along the way.
0: A lot of Catholics today uh, because of Newman, and probably more importantly, because of the Second Vatican Council, are certainly very comfortable with this idea of the conscience. But for centuries, Catholics viewed the conscience suspiciously uh, because of the Protestant reformers and their emphasis. So, for ex- uh, emphasis on the conscience. So, for example, in 1521, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in front of Charles V, when he was asked to account recant of his Uh, his his teachings he said quote unless i am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason for i do not trust either in the popes or in councils alone since it is well known that they have often erred and uh, contradicted themselves i am bound by the scriptures i have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of god i cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience right and then supposedly he said you know here I stand I can do no other um, so so conscience is seen for centuries really as a Protestant thing and Catholics were suspicious of it um, can you talk about that suspicion uh, why should Catholics not be suspicious why not think of it as this uh, this sort of protestant thing i mean you were you were quoting something from newman earlier from 19 uh, 1830 and that was from his protestant days you talked about how he had a different vision of the conscience than say alphonsus or thomas um so one might think that this is um this isn't really a catholic thing this is a protestant thing that newman brought in with him so um talk more about this sort of suspicion that catholics had for a long time
1: well i mean so conscience i think has always been um it's been a constant teaching. Um, It's, I mean, obviously it's in scripture and um, Jerome and Augustine obviously talked about it as well. Um, You know, they talked about this word synderesis, which was really a, a a mistransliteration of the word synidesis, which is the Greek word that you see in scripture. You see it in chapter one of Romans. And so um, Luther made conscience an appeal um, and, but even as the quote you you kind of presented there is in a sense there's this kind of like um it's almost it's a personal appeal and newman would say that that's self-will and um versus listening to the voice of god and so one of the things that um you know saint font saint alphonsus kind of in the 17th century kind of resurrects like a, a doctrine that you but i agree with you right it fell out of favor because it, it fell out of favor of like, well, then, okay, then anybody can just declare like, okay, it's my conscience. I want to be a Protestant or I want to be a blah, Right. And so the church began to kind of, you know, it began to, you know, show his favor. And I think St. Alphonsus, like, you know, why he's, you know, really kind of the moral doctor of the church, he comes in and gives a kind of a new rational foundation of it. And, and, you know, in, in bearing it out as a judgment reason, and if you see in the, in the catechism, it's kind of, we, we haven't fully gotten there yet in terms of kind of having a doctrine of conscience that um, feels fully um, whole, because you have it on the, like, because you're, and, and it doesn't mean it's not, the, the, the actual teaching isn't there, because it is. It's the language we have, because St. Thomas and St. Alphonsus are using really a very uh, Roman and scholastic understanding of the, the concept of reason. And Newman is, is using a, a, a different, coming at it a different way, but actually they're very complementary approaches. Um, it's just that Newman, in especially in his day, would use the, the, the word reason, had a much more restricted understanding than it did in scholastic thought. But St. Alphonsus, what I want to get back to is that St. Alphonsus really kind of recovered conscience um, as, a, as an absolutely essential piece to the moral life um, that... Um, having it it's in another words, it's it's not just a calculation right so it's not just a okay i I line up the good line up the bad and let like the angels on my shoulders decide um saint alphonsus really was saying that it's 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 the fullness of your being that has to bear on moral concrete questions um to kind of to to approach the good and avoid the evil um and and i really think about it you know in terms of what does that like what does that look like it's kind of like How do you know where your conscience is functioning? Uh, You know, check it against the Beatitudes. Like, how has your life lived in light of the Beatitudes? Or to to an extent, you know, as St. Alphonsus and others would use the Ten Commandments, right? Um, Especially the first one. Like, how much do you love the Lord your God? Because that's the entirety of the Ten Commandments make no sense if you don't get the first one. And that doesn't become the number one for you. And I think Newman would approach it that way. So Newman, but what Newman saw with the reformers, even if Luther would say, I believe it is the authentic voice of God telling me to resist the church this way, there can be something to that in 1520. But by 1527, I mean Luther is literally trying to rewrite the entirety of Christian, like Catholic doctrine and Christian doctrine. And he's, you know, completely changed the, you know, where the authority of the church is. Right. And so Newman would look at that and say, uh, that's not a dictator of your conscience. You're doing something totally different. And he would say that that's self will. So, um, but for Catholics today, we are so used to being, in a sense, having this individualistic, very American can do attitude, which is this is what I think, and I'm just going to go with what I think. And that's the way it's going to be. And Newman would say, okay. Imagine God is sitting with you, and you are having that conversation. And you should be having that conversation in your mind. What is God going to say about your actions? What is he? What is? How is he going to look at that? Is he going to approve of it? So it's not whether you are going to approve of it. It's would God approve of it? And if you think he does, Newman say the next question is: Which God are you talking about? Who is that God? Are you sure it's the God of the Bible, the God of the liturgy, the God of church doctrine? Or is it uh, your own God or uh, another God that you've kind of made a mishmash out of, right? And what Newman would say is a lot of people self-deceive. So they deceive themselves. And and first of all, they invent a new God that's really not in line with the Christian kind of way. And then they make the next step of um, justifying themselves in light of that God and say, see, I'm following my own conscience. Or sometimes they don't even, they don't even listen to God. They think that their God is their self. And so I'm just making that choice and that's what it is.
0: At the same time that Newman was emphasizing the conscience in the, in the 19th century, the Catholic church in a sense was taking a sort of different epistemological stance, a stance on how we know what we know, specifically the first Vatican council in 1869 and 1870, uh, where the church formally declared papal infallibility um, in light of his understanding of the conscience, how did Newman react to this new definition of infallibility? How did he see infallibility and the conscience in, uh, in relation to one another?
1: That's a good question. And I think that was at the heart of his book called um, A Letter to the Duke of uh, Norfolk. And um, which really, I mean, there's like a subtitle, that's called Conscience in the Papacy, and which he and other Catholics were accused of being bad Englishmen, because their loyalty was to the Pope and not to the King or not to the, to the British Parliament. And so Newman was accused as so many other were and, and Newman responded. The letter itself is kind of a weird mishmash. It's not the most, um, it's not the easiest thing to go through except the eighth chapter, I believe, is the chapter on conscience. And it's one that um, has gotten a lot of play because Newman makes this kind of quip at the end, you know, if, if, if taking a drink to the Pope or the conscience I say first drink to the conscience and then to the Pope. And a lot of people are like, see, this is Newman, um, you know, putting the individual over the papacy. And that's not what Newman was saying at all. What Newman would say is that if you truly have your conscience alive within you and the voice of God, which is also the voice of doctrine and scripture, are alive to your mind, it's truly within you. And that conversation is there. So it's not an echo it's like God's loud and clear, then when the Pope would make an infallible decree, your conscience and you're you're gonna see it. But if the Pope were to come out and say, you know what, we need to invade France again, then your conscience would say, why would we do that? Right? Because what Newman is gonna say is not what everything the Pope says is infallible. And that's part of, he did not want them to define infallibility because he, he thought that it was already part of Catholic practice, that we understood that when the Pope made a, a judgment, like he did at the Council of Chalcedon, for example, on like the two natures of Christ, like we understood it's definitive, like that's, that's a definitive judgment of the Pope. Um, and that one was Pope Leo the Great. So then we would not say like, we know it's operative. We already, you know, when the Pope has had to, had to adjudicate matters and make calls and we know that, that becomes part of our doctrinal life. Why do we need to define it? And he was very afraid that there were going to be those who co-opted the papacy to, in a sense, get the papacy to ha- the, to have unlimited kind of secular political powers um, and, and spiritual powers, and that that would create this crisis in like the balance of like church and state. That the, that and Newman understood, you know, historically that was a very important thing. So he had a lot of trepidation now, when the first Vatican Council decree came out, and they were under a lot of pressure because Garibaldi was invading Rome and trying to unify europe uh, unify Italy rather, and um they had to call the council short um but when Newman finally saw the decree, he was like, "Oh okay, this is not this is not a huge deal um in other words, he's like if you had to define it, that definition is, it's good, it's restrictive and it leaves the Pope to where he is, which is the Pope's gonna have a ton of different opinions. I mean, in other words, today, I think Catholics can rightly debate Pope Francis's stance on climate change, right? And some people are gonna think Pope Francis is wrong and some people are gonna think he's right. That's, uh, Newman would say, that has nothing to do with infallibility. That happens to do, that's the Pope's, trying, trying to apply Catholic doctrine to something that's outside of the realm of Catholic doctrine, um, and and good and kind of well-formed minds can just you know disagree. But if Pope Francis came out and and you know um, made a doctrinal statement on the resurrection, which so far we don't have any doctrinal statements on the resurrection, the Church just teaches it, and we all believe it, and it's an infallible doctrine of the Church. But if if for some reason a heresy or you know, a conflict emerged and the Pope had to say, look, this is the resurrection and this is what we mean by it. And that's definitive. I mean, our conscience is going to say, well, yeah, that's true. But also we're going to be able to affirm the Pope's infallibility on that. And Newman would say, I don't have a problem with that. But if Pope Francis were to say, we have to follow these rules and procedures to prevent climate change. And I'm saying that ex cathedra, like in an infallible way, Newman would say, we need to go check our conscience on that
0: one. I'd mentioned earlier that you are the founder of the Newman Idea. Tell us about that. What is its mission? Uh, what are some of its programming? How does it go about accomplishing its mission? Well,
1: no, thanks. Um, so I, I was a you know, Stuart and I were you and I were classmates. Uh, we did our doctorates around the same time. We actually graduated on the same day. And um, for a decade, or for a little less than a decade, I was the uh, I was an assistant professor and then department chair and associate professor of theology at the University of Holy Cross. And during that time, I met this guy named uh, this, this you know, life-changing person named Don Brill, who was a numinist himself, and, and we got to talking about Catholic education, and he really influenced me to um, try to find better ways to, to educate um, the laity that um, many of our Catholic universities at, I mean, we've lost 50 in the last um, less than 50 years. And we're going to be losing more Catholic colleges and universities um, as time rolls on with the financial crises and whatnot. And Don was saying that, you know, 90% or over 90% of Catholics go to secular schools, go to, you know, state schools or, or other places like that. And it just blew my mind. And I said, well, we're, we're, not, we're not able to reach them and give them at least a Catholic formation if they're all at, at these large state schools. And so I took a sabbatical and I did a lot of research on U.S. higher education, especially U.S. Catholic education. And um, I came to the conclusion after reading the Newman sermon and going on retreat and praying about it a lot that I wanted to start a nonprofit. And then upon doing that, I wanted to leave my job, my nice cushy prof- professorial job and um, and run a nonprofit, which was, you know, in one sense, the greatest mistake and, and greatest thing I've ever done. Um, <laughs> It's um, it's I tell people it's the best job I've ever had. And, and by far, it's by like by leaps and bounds, it's the hardest. Um, and but I also feel like God has called me to this mission to try to figure out ways to reach Catholic students. And Newman has a phrase um, developing their clear heads and holy hearts, because Newman would say you can't have a pure heart if your head's not clear. And if your head's not, if your head's not clear, you're not going to have the holy heart that you want. And so, what we try to do is we have this we have something called the Icon Program, which is a series of courses and mentoring, very much similar to Newman, how Newman tutored at Oxford, um, where we want to reach Catholic students at um, colleges, any college and university that will invite us, and we want to we want to do you know um, we want to teach, um, and mentor and counsel and help them um, develop themselves intellectually as Catholics, but. Not intellectually, just so that they you know, they got a bunch of awesome information, but really what Newman's whole idea is, is, is cultivating their mind so that they can be great lawyers and doctors and scientists and whatnot, and at the same time, they can um, really know how their faith connects to all of that and is integrated in their life and in what they know. And so we've been at Tulane, um, the Tulane Catholic Center in New Orleans for the last three years, and I've been able to lecture at other campus ministries Um, And our goal in the next year or two is really to move the Newman idea online and into kind of a virtual reality where more people can access what we're doing um, and and kind of can learn the way that we're we're really trying to follow Newman's teachings, but it's also um, very, um, we're using a lot of contemporary books and talking about contemporary issues. And so our next year is really going to be doing that so that we can have a, a wider impact um, while still maintaining our personal kind of influence um, on students. And so that's um, it's kind of an exciting thing. And that's you're kind of the first person I've been able to tell that to publicly. And uh, we're yeah, really I didn't know about
0: that the, the internet piece. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. If somebody yeah. wants to learn more about the Newman idea, either the on-campus programming or this, this online uh, component, how can they get a hold of you? How can they find you online? So we're at www.newmanidea.org and um,
1: everything is kind of there. There's a, way, a place you can contact us. And if you'd like to contact me directly, you can contact me at info at newmanidea.org. And um, I would love to, uh, to talk with you. I also have a Newman, we have a mailing list where um, on his feast days and, and when I can get around to it, um, I, I take quotes, like I'm gonna use that quote that I read earlier And um, it's called my Newman Newman Daily Inspiration. And if you'd like to be on that list, I'd love to include it, include you on it. And and really, um, I I send that out as kind of an inspiration taken from his writings and especially from his sermons.
0: Final question. Uh, We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Uh, When you look to the future in this crazy world that we live in and see all the ways that people justify their behavior in the name of conscience, um what gives you hope Hmm. you know what i i will say
1: this i think that um that they can find a little bit of space so turn off their tiktok um feed and um put down their laptop screen take a walk and um and see if you can hear the echo um And Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, uh, pagans, uh, Buddhists, um, I'm I'm 100% with Newman on this one. Everybody has the echo. And it's always been there. And um, whatever you can do to go to try to listen to that echo, in other words, that's going to bring goodness and rightness and joy and peace and happiness into your life, Um, try to listen to it And, and understand that it's not your voice. It, it really is the voice of God speaking to you, only wanting good things. Now, that good thing may be like, you have to quit a relationship. You have to quit a habit that you have. It may So it may look bad, right? But um, Newman says that you know, the, the, a true dictative conscience is a sanction. And a sanction really is like a holy command. And um, so what gives me hope is that people are starting to figure out um, or will start to figure out that the virtual reality isn't um, is 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 one way of connecting, but there you you already have a, a deep connection within you. It's a deep voice, um, and for many of us, it's really buried. It's almost to the point where it's just a faint whisper. But my, I think the good news is if you go take a walk or just go take some time and just you know quiet yourself down, you're going to start hearing something, and um, I think you're going to find that it's a beautiful thing.
0: I definitely agree that it it reminds me of Cardinal Sarra's book on silence in our sort of uh, especially technological age that we live in. We've got so many distractions, so much noise. So uh, having that still voice uh, speaking to us can only be heard uh, when we're not being distracted by by noise all around us. Dr. Adelio, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely, Stuart,
1: and I look forward to talking to you again.